your recording with uh, with Dr. Richard Amling on Wednesday, June 21st, 2023 at 4:21 p.m. Eastern time. Um uh if I if I read it correctly, you did internal medicine and you, your job was terminated because you didn't comply with vaccine mandates and I can I was pre-med in college. Uh, I got into medical school at the University of Miami, and I was mad that Obamacare was passed. And I thought, how could they do this? I've put so much time into getting in, and now the government's going to get involved in in what, for me, is a dream job. I decided not to go, obviously, as I'm doing this. I can't even imagine actually going through medical school and residency and being a practicing physician and then having government come in and step on your dreams. I, I don't, I would lose my mind. I would have a temper tantrum that would probably put me in a psych ward. Um, and with that uh, unholy and unprofessional introduction, Dr. Amelin, could you please introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, actually, it's a little bit more involved than that. It's worse. It's a lot worse. Oh, God. Uh, well, Dr. Richard Amerling. I'm currently the chief academic officer at the wellness company, but I've come a long way to be in this position, starting with graduating medical school in 1981, doing roughly nine years of internal medicine and nephrology training, uh, and then working for 26 years at Beth Israel Medical Center as an attending nephrologist uh, where, by the way, I, I worked very closely with the, none other than here, Corey. He and I were friends. He was okay. there at the same time. Um, <clears throat> I had an academic position as associate professor um, at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. When Mount Sinai took over the hospital around 2014, 2015, and they started to dismantle it. And it was very un unpleasant to watch and experience my job was secure, but it was not going to be, I was not going to be promoted there. That was sure. I had rubbed the wrong, the, the wrong people the wrong way. Um, and I was looking to get out. And in 2016, I saw an ad on the subway in New York for the St. George's University School of Medicine, which is down in Grenada in the Caribbean. And I had heard about it. It was, you know, they have a lot of students and a lot of them become residents and they trained in the States. In fact, I, I, I had known some in my program. So I said, you know, that's not a bad exit strategy. When sure. I think about it, I went online, I applied and several months later got called down for an interview and the rest is history. I worked there for five years uh, when COVID hit. So I was teaching clinical, clinical skills, which is, should be the art of how to make a diagnosis and you know, how to do a history, physical exam. That was, my position, I also set up a nephrology clinic there at the local hospital, which was an amazing experience. Um, in 2020, they went online when COVID hit, which I think was a big mistake. Of course, they pulled all their third and fourth year students out of their clinical electives and rotations in hospitals, mostly in the States. Another huge mistake. Uh, why? do that. I mean, these kids were not at risk of any serious results from COVID, and they would have been extremely useful on the front lines, certainly in New York, where I ended up. Um, and what an experience that you deprived, that they deprived them of. 
by pulling them off the front lines, that was, you know, a horrible decision. It wasn't just St. George's, by the way. I think most of the medical schools did the same thing. Well, um, so I ended up going up to New York, April of 2020, and I volunteered with old friends and colleagues at Bellevue Hospital in their nephrology division and helped them with their acute dialysis program. They had a lot of kidney failure, and this was COVID-related. This was pre-remdesivir. Um, but that's also an amazing experience to be confronting this new disease and seeing all these horrifically ill patients, uh, some of whom were sicker than anyone I'd ever seen before. You know, so there was no question in my mind at this point that this was a new disease. There were clinical features that were unique to it. So around June 2020, the ICU started to empty out. There were no new patients coming in. I figured this is it. This epidemic has peaked. It's over. Uh, let's go back to life as usual. But that didn't happen, obviously. And it became clear that this was a trumped-up excuse to impose an authoritarian type of mm -hmm. system over the United States people. It was quite uh, appalling to see how people complied. This was one of the most distressing things to me, see how voluntarily people complied. They wore masks. I wore a mask. I double masked when I went in to see patients. But as soon as I left the hospital, it came off. And the whole masking thing was absurd. It never made any sense. The lockdowns were absurd. In fact, there is excellent data showing that the viral infections peaked in New York a week or two before the lockdowns were instituted. So the lockdowns clearly did nothing except destroy what was once a great city. I ended up going back down to Grenada. I'll just cut to the chase where I reestablished my practice. And sadly, the school was about to impose their vaccine mandate. Now, the vaccine, this was in the spring of 2021. These shots had just come out. There was no long-term safety data at all. And the short-term data wasn't that encouraging because we already were seeing deaths in the VAERS system. And the mechanism of action of the shots was always a questionable thing. You know, the production of foreign protein by messenger RNA, this is something that had never been done before. For a vaccine, it was absurd. So I was never going to take the shot. And to be told that I had to, to stay employed there was quite shocking. But we ended up parting ways. And I did. I worked for a while for America's Frontline Doctors and then with colleagues founded the wellness company with Foster Paulson, Canadian entrepreneur. And uh, that's where we are today. But, you know, what you said about the government getting involved in medical care with uh, Obamacare, boy, it started way before that. And I witnessed the whole thing because my career spans a long, many decades now. So I saw the whole thing kind of have its peak and then de descend into what is truly an abysmal place right now. So the medical profession <clears throat> wasn't just this job. The medical profession has become pretty horrible. So I'm glad you didn't become a doctor because you you, you certainly ended up doing something much more productive. Medicine today is a disaster. And at the wellness company, we are hoping to push back in our own way 
by going parallel. The current system is so badly damaged that we really can't do much to save it. We can only do what we can do alongside the current system. And that's what we're, we're working on now at the wellness company. There's something poetic about, uh, it's not even that you necessarily want to do X. It's when the infusion of government destroys the system so much, you end up through hell or high water going into something private, even if that wasn't your initial endeavor. And yeah, I mean, I do, I do. The, there's the most difficult thing ever was getting into medical school. And the most difficult decision ever was deciding not to, and having no backup plan, by the way, I, I cut my parachute with no backup, but, and I, mm. 10 years of just unimaginable horror, but starting this podcast, I really do feel like I've kind of found what I'm supposed to do, but that was definitely the hardest thing ever. And, uh, I didn't quite understand it. Uh, one of my uncles was an orthopedic surgeon. Another, uh, was a pathologist, went to Duke Medical School, and I remember I had asked both of, both of them the summer I got into medical school. Um, you know, I'm I'm having they both asked me they're like, why are you having cold feet? And I was like, well, you know, X, Y, and Z, and they both said um, independently, which I thought was unique, was um, it's a trick question. The answer should be I'm not having cold feet, and then okay, well, you you are meant to be a doctor if you're <laughs> having anything. This is not for you. And one of my uncles made a brilliant point. He goes, uh, there's no dipping your toes in. After a year of medical school, the only way to pay back that bill is becoming a doctor. <laughs> and he was like, it's quicksand. And yeah, no, so I look back at it now and, I, and, I, and I'm the best decision I've ever made in my life. But when you do look at something like this, is there anything other to do? Than to, I've, I've interviewed a lot of special forces guys, Delta Force and everything, and they, they talk about it's it's pretty binary. When you when you come in contact with the enemy, you either kill them all, or you break contact. There's really no, there's nothing in between. We're either going to take them all out, or that is a much bigger group of people, a much bigger unit, and we need to break contact and we'll go whatever regroup. When I when I look at the government's response to to COVID, and like you said, the the most disheartening thing of all was people just going along with it. You either take it head on and you go, we're going to beat it all. Or you go, we're going to make, we're going to break contact. And I was banned from YouTube and iTunes for interviewing Dr. McCullough and Dr. Malone. And very, I got, you know, I got one warning, a second warning, a third warning, a first strike, a second strike. And they're like, if you do this again, you're getting banned. And I knew, I knew that I couldn't shut up. I knew that I couldn't live with myself. So, and I realized, okay, well, YouTube's got a market cap of about a trillion dollars. I'm not taking them on. I broke contact. I got banned. Now I'm on Rumble. It's worked out for the best. From your point of view, at a certain point, do you look at a system that is seemingly so bogged down by government intervention and government corruption, and then you have to be very realistic about the size of it and the money they're dealing with and their money to fight you? Is it that binary where you just look at it and you go, we're either going to take it on we're going to break contact. Is, is it simply that? Well, it does become that. But I want to clarify that it, if it were just government, yeah, it wouldn't be that big a lift. Because the government is so incompetent that you can take them on. Right? Okay. Uh, and also, they are susceptible to change via elections, at least theoretically. Uh, we know what that means. Yeah. It means well, fortification uh, no. at 4am. What we are witnessing is government industry collusion, which technically is fascism. When the government stacks the deck in favor of certain industries and they collude to rule over the people, 
uh, that's fascism. And that's what we're experiencing, medical fascism. And who, who's the industry? Well, it's, it's huge. It's pharma, which is massive and getting bigger and bigger all the time with all their ill-gotten gains from these shots. It's the big hospital corporations, the insurance industry, um, and government to a certain extent. You know, Medicare and Medicaid are still players, but they're in a way big players now. And if it were only them, we would have a fighting chance because bureaucrats are mostly incompetent and actually, for the most part, decent. Okay, the government bureaucrats are, for the most part, decent people. But we're talking about uh, <clears throat> three-letter agencies that have become entirely corrupted by the actual process, by their funding mechanism. I mean, for example, FDA gets much of their funding now from industry, and that's been going on since the 90s. So it's a, it's a corrupt institution. We can no longer take their approval process seriously. And in fact, I advise my doctors who I work with, don't use any new drugs. You cannot trust the FDA. They are bought and paid for. Uh, use only old tried and true drugs that you know are safe, like ivermectin, for example, or hydroxychloroquine. We know that these drugs are safe. We don't know that these new drugs that they keep coming out with are safe, and the approval process is suspect. Let's let's go for let's go for current events for all future listeners. Today is Wednesday, June twenty first, twenty twenty three. Um, uh, Joe Rogan interviewing Bobby Kennedy Jr. and then uh, you know going after Dr. Peter Hotez on Twitter, who I knew nothing about before Saturday. I actually looked back at some of my episodes. Dr. McCall has brought him up multiple times, and I, I, I just never knew who he was. But him not coming on to debate versus you, we've never talked before. You and I have technically known each other for about 14 minutes. There's no, there's no fear, right? You're, you're, you, you know, you know what you've done. You know what is science. You know ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine work. You just know what it is. There's no, you, there's no. You know, there's no there's no butterflies about it. You know, am I going to be able to pull off this lie? It just is what it is. You're coming on. You're telling me about gravity or about the specific heat of water. It's just it is what it is. And there's no doesn't you don't need to convince anyone. It's just the truth. And then you look at Dr. Hotez, who by now could have done 50 Joe Rogan interviews, but he's still going out talking about how it is very vital and important that the science is not debated. Now, I am going to van uh, mandate this vaccine on you and your loved ones. If you don't get it, you can't provide food for your aforementioned loved ones. But I will not go on to the biggest platform on the planet and discuss why the science is. Just from that, what 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 does that do to you? When, when you? when you know that you can just so confidently come on here, talk to an individual you've never talked to before, because you, you, you know what you back, and then you see this on the world stage i will not go debate this i will not what what does that do to you just as as a scientist well there has been a complete absence of debate since this whole thing started there has not been one prominent debate that i'm aware of between let's say uh my partner dr mccullough and dr fauci these guys will not debate us they will not. They don't know the data very well. They're not that smart. And they know that they would get cream. And I've repeatedly offered to, I'll debate anyone about anything. I, I know what I know. My beliefs are science-based. I'm not going to be citing guidelines 
or so-called evidence-based medicine, which is a scam. I'm going to go to the real science. And these guys can't do that. I'll be happy to debate any of them. I mean, I, I challenge physicians to come out and debate me. By the way, I used to debate in, in the early 2000s when the evidence-based medicine movement was gathering steam and was resulting in the creation of clinical practice guidelines. I knew immediately that this was a scam and I started to take a position on that and wrote some papers and I would engage in debates at scientific meetings on these whole this whole guideline movement. Do we need them? What, what, is, what are the harms? Everybody embraced them. And this was a huge problem. Uh, the guidelines directly led to, the, to the, the downfall of medicine. Why? Because doctors turned over their critical thinking to guideline committees. These committees were doctors, their peers or you know, uh, academic physicians, the majority of whom had financial ties to industry. So they were inherently unreliable. They were biased. <clears throat> the guidelines themselves were funded by industry for the most part. So they were always going to be used for marketing. And that's exactly what happened. But what I was warning my colleagues about was that, okay, you know, let's just say these are recommendations. Uh, the problem is that when you issue these guideline statements, they take on a life of their own and they can be used by outside authorities and you can't control how they're going to be used. And this is exactly what happened. These guidelines became the basis for preferential payment procedures. And ultimately they are now truly mandates. So what were once recommendations are now considered so-called standard of care. And if you deviate from these guidelines, you're outside the standard of care and you are going to be censured uh, attacked, you're going to have your certification attacked, your license perhaps, and you're going to be drummed out of the profession because you dare to think outside the box and practice individualized care for your patient. Because these guidelines are the, in essence, a one-size-fits-all approach to medical care. This is kind of my logic, is... You know, I'll try not to go full tribal warfare and say I hate Peter Hook. Because, right, once you fall into kind of emotions and stuff, you, you stop using logic. So, sure, you're a doctor, you're, you're Dr. Hotez, you're the head of whatever, and you see some people, you know, Joe Rogan, who admittedly doesn't look like a scientist, right? He's you're covered in tattoos. You, okay, given. And you're looking at him and he's saying vaccine. And you're going, I'm not going to go, you know, get in the mud with the pig. All right. Fair enough. I don't agree with it, but fair enough. But like a kid who's scared of a monster under his bed and you go, there's no monster under your bed. But then, you know, you finally you realize after the 10th straight night, the kid's six years old and he's terrified. So you go, OK, and you go in there with the light. and You go, there's nothing under there. Right. Sure. A waste of your time. But it's affecting the kid every day. And you're all right. I'll go show you. OK, fair enough. If somebody said they didn't believe in gravity, I would laugh at them. And I'd go, I'm not going to give you a, a debate. But if I really saw that it was bothering them and they were making such a big deal of it and it was making me look bad, and like, dude, Tommy's scared to debate gravity, eventually I would go in there with the confidence of a god and go, yeah, you know, here it is. Get out a high-speed camera. We're going to drop this thing. Look at that. You can calculate the acceleration. It's 9.81 meters per second squared. And you just lay it on the table and it would be over. This isn't some, like, obscure 
fringe science? Are there aliens on the backside of the moon? It, it, it's a vaccine that you have forced into the household of every individual, right? The Ukraine war is kind of, it's kind of detached. We're not actually putting U.S. boots on the ground. We're, we're just giving them money. It's a little more abstract versus a draft. Well, now you do have to come out and give a very convincing argument for the war because it is affecting me. So this isn't some obscure thing. This is a vaccine that, like yourself, no one was immune from, no pun intended. Everyone had to get it, and there was billions of dollars to be made and legitimate side effects. You, you, it is your obligation. You do have to go on. And you know what? Maybe you mop the floor with Bobby Kennedy. Maybe you go on there and, like the gravity, people leave there going, man, I feel like an idiot. You know, Dr. Hotez came in there and, pfft. yeah, and you know what? Next time Rogan wants to debate something, maybe I'll assume he is an idiot. But, but he hasn't done that. And, and if you refuse to debate someone or you just censor someone, rightfully or wrongfully, all you're doing is making them a martyr in their mind. You're making them think that, oh, they don't want to debate me because they don't want to talk about the flat earth. That must mean it's real. No, it's not. But when you silence someone like that, they start to think that there's some hardcore rebel who's getting at the real truth. So that's where it comes to from me is like, no, you don't have to go debate anyone. But you do. And by not doing it and by no other doctor stepping up and going, Hotez won't do it. I'll, Tommy doesn't want to do the gravity debate. And Dr. Amberlin goes, I'll do it. I took physics. No one's stepping up to take it, which now is it's getting weirder and weirder. It's like going to the bank vault and saying, show me the gold. <laughs> we have the gold. Well, show me. I don't have to show you. Well, you should now all the townspeople are there. Well, our savings are here. Where's the gold? I don't have to show you the gold. Well, then, and, you know, and then the military shows up and goes, show us the gold. And you go, I don't have to. Well, now we're all assuming the gold isn't in the vault. That's kind of where I'm coming from. Is like, you no, know, you, you, you do have to go on and debate or go anywhere and debate. And that's. <sighs> I, you know, Hotez, I consider to be somewhat of a buffoon. Sure. Uh, I, I don't respect him. I think he's uh, a phony. And he's never going to get up there and debate him, debate someone like RFK Jr., who knows his facts. He's extremely smart. He's a great debater. I'm sure he would make mincemeat out of him. And I'm sure that Peter has come to the same conclusion. But as I said, this goes way back to the beginning. I, I mean, Steve Kirsch has a million-dollar bet yeah. on the table looking for anyone to take him on in a debate over the fact that not, not him, but say McCullough on, and, and no one's going to be able to beat Peter McCullough. He, his command of the literature is so uh, impressive. That, Intimidating. You know, but you know, my approach differs. Peter and I are all, also old friends, by the way. We're, we're, we go way back. We used to run into each other at conferences uh, during our academic careers. Two things I want to say about Peter and Pierre, both very old and dear friends of mine. Neither of them had conflicts of interest, right? This is extremely important. Not only did they not have conflicts of interest, they had a lot to lose. Yeah. And they lost a lot. So this it, this gives them innate credibility in their positions versus, let's say, a vaccine advocate who has a position staked out, who's being paid by industry, they, they don't have any credibility. They're they're full of conflicts, either ideological or actual financial conflicts of interest. So that's 
the other the other way that I look at it is that you go to the hardcore science because going back and forth citing studies is a dead end in my view because you you know it's sort of like you have a trial a medical malpractice trial and the defense has their experts the plaintiff has their experts and they fight it out and they cite their data etc and then the jury decides that is not satisfying to me as a scientist i want to see real scientific facts now what are the facts about these jabs well we know that they are new technology. We know that they are untested, largely in humans. We know that they all code for the production of a foreign protein. And so we know a lot of things that are inherently bad. You don't have to really go into the data of individual studies, but when you do go into the individual studies, they don't look, these shots don't look very good. In fact, they look like crap. When the drug company puts out what we call their pivotal trial, which is a study upon which they get approval from the FDA for their drug, that is the best that drug is ever going to look. And nothing that can be done afterwards can ever come close to that study. And when you look at the pivotal trials for these shots, they're full of holes. They are extremely poorly done. You can see that they didn't meet any serious endpoint. What do I mean by that? Well, serious endpoint for a drug or a vaccine would be decreased death rate, decreased hospitalization, uh, decreased rates of infection. None of these endpoints were met. And if they're not gonna be met on the pivotal trial, designed, conducted, and written by the sponsoring companies, they're never going to be met. So that's as far as you really have to look to know that these shots are a bust. And then we know that there are safety events that have been occurring from the very beginning that are way in excess of anything ever before observed with any other vaccine. So these are facts, you cannot really debate them. And they're, they're obviously uh, self-evident. Right. So you can't really get into a debate over this stuff. And that's why they won't, because they can't possibly win. They cannot possibly win a debate with someone who is uh, up on the science of these shots. At the same time, I feel like what we're witnessing was unavoidable. It was you, you can't have this much corruption or industry consolidation or media capture or elite institution capture eventually it's something's gonna break right it's got the friend in middle school who never gets his butt kicked and he's in high school and he never get and finally you're like man you're gonna meet someone who like doesn't know who your daddy is or something and they're gonna lay and it happens and it's often a great thing and they learn from it right but it was there was no point that they were ever you meet him you go dude i don't know when it's coming but karma's coming one day and finally you i was a bouncer in college and every once in a while you you'd see some rich freshman from some prep school just get laid out by some kid who didn't care. And you go, well, that was probably a decade in the works, right? That doesn't make it right. It just makes it kind of nature. I feel like this was bound to happen. We saw it with COVID, but I don't think it began with COVID. I think that it was just a matter of the perfect storm of, of media capture, of censorship, of collusion, 
FDA, CDC, NIH, NIAID, capture of all of them, eventually the spark was going to land. And I think, unfortunately, because a lot of people have I've interviewed the va- vaccine injured, it's heartbreaking. This was inevitable, and it's probably, in an abstract, objective way, it's probably good it happened. Because you can tell people all day long about corruption and capture. Okay, yeah, whatever, dude. Until it's until it hits every home. And I think it's unfortunate, but I also think that this was an unavoidable lesson. And, you know, it's good that you can't... I can't say that nothing good has come from this. Three years ago, if I told you I didn't want to upload my podcast to YouTube, where should I upload it? You'd look at me and laugh, right? But now you got Rumble, BitChute, Odyssey, CloudHub, Radeon. I can't use Twitter. Where should I go? You'd laugh. Getter, Gab, Truth, FreeSpace, Brady, CloudHub, all of them, right? <clears throat> Wellness company. Yeah, no, it, it was going to happen, and it needed to happen. And now there are parallel infrastructures rising up around it. Is there is there any credence to what I just said, or am, or am I delusionally optimistic? Well, no, there there is a lot to be hopeful about. Um what I take aim at is the medical profession. Again, the medical profession failed the country in a very major way because they should have been on top of this from the beginning. Like some of us were, right? Some of us were on top of it. We saw through it and we said, no, this is not good science. It's not good for patients. And it's frankly unethical. It's unethical to use an experimental product on people in a coercive way. And that's exactly what was done. So the medical profession should have been pushing back 100% all, all the way. And in fact, 98% of the medical profession just went along. And that to me is an egregious failure and has, has kind of destroyed the reputation of the medical profession for a long time, if not forever. Do you think also, because I think Dr. McCullough has said that and he's been on here a million times before and you're, he, his command of the literature is n- nothing short of frightening. It's, you know, I, I, he's, he's like one of the reasons why I always just have to be honest. Cause I'm like, there, there's someone, o- there will always be someone smarter than you and you don't want to catch yourself in a hotel situation. So you might, I think it was Winnie the Pooh, right? You don't have to remember anything. If you just tell the truth. <laughs> I'm like, I just don't, I don't try to pull a fast one on anybody because I never know who I'm talking to. But he said this once on here, said that it was the medical Super Bowl. It was like the final training. You know, right. I get the Delta Force guys, they always say, you know, when you, uh, Dale Comstock, a friend of mine, he's, I think he's 60 now. He was 23 when he got into Delta Force, youngest ever member. And he goes, you finally finished selection. And it's last, last forever. And it's even the selection process was classified. There are guys who broke their femurs and still finish. Just, just animals. And he goes, and you finally get there. You finally get into the unit. And then the commander comes to you on the first day and says, if there is ever a day that you are not giving 110%, you're out of here. Selection never ends. It's a self-cleaning oven. It's just kind of dark, but I think about that. This almost seems to be like the final Mm. test for doctors like you, Dr. McCullough, Dr. Corey. How real is the Hippocratic Oath? How good are your critical thinking skills? How good are you at 
not flipping into the back of the book and finding the answers. No, we got to find the answers, right? You know, that's the thing about doing, I did toxicology research in college. Yeah, it, it, it kind of it kind of hits you when you go, oh, I can't just go to the back of the book and find the answers to the odd questions. No one knows. That's why it's research. It really starts to flex that, you know, like right? just when you're you know, doing push-ups, you start to feel it burn. It starts to burn your brain. You go, oh, we got to actually start getting the neurons sweating. And I guess this is more of like a philosophical question. But does this feel like the final? It's like it is the Super Bowl test. Like, what do you do when all the when all the institutions are captured? Like, there's no test for that. That's not taught to you in medical school. What happens when all the the media is in bed with the companies and the government? It's it's yeah. I guess it is more of a spiritual philosophical question. But it is like it's the final gauntlet as a as a medical professional. Well, I remember when the medical profession would have stood up to this. So this has been a transformation of the medical profession that I've witnessed over my career. And this is one of the things that uh, Peter McCullough has pointed out, that doctors abandon their patients. This is unethical. And they need to be called out for that. They should never have gone along with the so-called guidance. And this is, again, comes from this whole uh, cult of evidence-based medicine and guideline medicine, which is frankly, what is being taught in medical schools now. Young medical students are not being taught critical thinking. They're not being taught how to reason, how to really think like the clinician of old. And that's scary for the future of the country because these doctors are really not gonna be able to practice good medicine. They just are not gonna have the skills. Mm. But the Super Bowl of medicine, I love the analogy. And again, they pulled the medical students out. They pulled them out of the Super Bowl. They should have been in, in, in the, on the front line with everybody else. No, they got a shelter, right? This is absolutely the wrong message to send to a young doctor. You're not supposed to cower in fear of some disease. No, no you're supposed to confront it. And in fact, even if you <clears throat> don't know much about the disease, and even if you don't know how to treat it, and that's the situation we were in at the very outset of this thing in March and say early April, then you still don't abandon your patient. You still have to be there for your patient and sit there with them and hold their hand and get them through by hook or by crook. And sometimes that's what it comes down to. And it comes down to you as a human being exerting your personal power to help a patient heal and to make them feel comforted. Uh, Because a lot of it is anxiety and stress that they're going through this horrible disease alone. And so many did. And this is an egregious lapse by the medical profession. Again, a huge violation of ethics, abandoning your your patient, allowing them to come to harm when you should have been standing there helping them as best you could, even if you didn't have much to offer, you should have been there holding their hand. Look, throughout most of the history of medicine, we didn't have much to offer patients. There were no miracle cures. You know, until antibiotics came around in the 30s and 40s, what did we have? Laudanum, right? Yeah. Dope. (laughs) We did not have much. We had digitalis uh, and a few other herbs. There was not much that we could offer. Actually, you know, the chinchona bark, which which is the origin of colchicine, uh, things like that. But again, we offered our personal power our healing power, the placebo effect of a physician in a white coat. This is always there and it's always available. 
and doctors failed to use this during the early day, days of COVID. And it was there for everybody to see. So patients rightfully lost their respect for the medical profession. And many now fear going to doctors and hospitals. Yeah, I mean, yeah, laudanum. I always remember that term. Laudanum's crazy. It was like opium, wine, and cocaine or something. It's something you read it and you're like, good Lord. Um, no, the good stuff. Yeah, no, no, yeah, no, I mean, it's that's more hardcore than any partier today and back then i was like yeah we give it a baby so it's just like god you know different different time but no for, for a long time it was you know yeah give them some morphine take out the saw and chop off the leg or you send in the you send in the pastor and it though dark there is but there's there's a lot of reality to that even if there's nothing to be done you go in there with the white coat that is real, man. Placebo effect is real. It is. It right? is really. Yeah. Hey, you're on a plane going through turbulence. I don't care if the pilot's looking at the instruments and goes, "Oh God, oh we're done for." No, you come on the intercom and you say, uh, "Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we are going through some stuff." Yeah, that's all we have, man. Now that's at the very least that is what you have to provide. And it's no, they didn't do that. And I think what you said on. And maybe we'll 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 wrap it up on on this note. Is and I do think this is probably going to be the biggest longing, longest lasting effect from the pandemic. The first bad thing is pushing a vaccine that's clearly unsafe. Much much bigger than that is suppressing safe alternative treatments: ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. Mm-hmm. Even bigger than that, I think, is the destruction of the trust. In the white coat doctor where it's, you know, even Red Cross, it's like, don't shoot at him during a war. Right. It's there's just a certain, you know, what did, what did Reagan's doctor say? Like, you know, thank God he was a Republican or something or something along the lines. Of, it's but the joke, it's always like the doctor is going to see it. They don't care who you are. The, the doctor is going to come to it is a higher calling that has been eviscerated and with with some good good cause but also it's gonna overreach you might have people go well the covid vaccine was bad for me correct well now when the doctor tells you but hey man like you do need to get a checkup you got to get that you know that tag on your arm you got to get that you know freeze dried off it might be cancer why should i believe in you that i think is going to be the longest lasting damaging effect from covid is that respect which had been built up over decades centuries really was just nuked off the map and there are going to be a lot of people who die needlessly because they don't see any reason to trust a doctor and it's it kind of feels like we're back in the stone age now it's going to take 50 100 years to build back that 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 confidence do is that your fear i know you kind of said it was yes i i agree with really everything you said and this is one of our main motivators in the wellness company and one of the reasons why we put the company together because we feel that this trust must be restored and the medical profession must be restored. And if it's going to just be a handful of doctors, that's enough to get it going again. As long as we go back to our roots of Hippocratic and real science, that's what's missing and the humanity and reinforcing what we call the patient-physician relationship, which is where healing occurs. You cannot have AI heal a patient. It's simply never going to happen. It is the human touch of a physician, which, by the way, doesn't require touch. We know that we can do this through telemedicine, which is what we're doing at the wellness company. Touch is great, but you can get a lot done without it. 
but the human concern, the caring, the caring of a trained physician is something that will never be replaced by a machine. And that is what we're trying to reinvent through <clears throat> education, bringing in doctors who see things the same way we do, going through re-education in a way, having them throw out a lot of the crap they learned in medical school, which is pharma-driven, and going back to science-based care, which is mostly pharma-free. I mean, most of diseases today are diseases of metabolism, that is to say, diet-related. Most of these diseases, such as diabetes, hypertension, polycystic ovaries, uh, cancer, are reversible or preventable through a proper diet. And that is what we emphasize. We're not looking to give you a ton of medicine. In fact, we're looking to deprescribe. We want to get you off of the medicines because the other major cause of disease today is overprescribing. So many people are taking so many drugs that the side effects take a toll. So that's our philosophy, restoration of medical ethics, put the patient first, restore the patient-physician relationship, reverse underlying disease, and deprescribe. Not an easy task, but I suppose it is It is the medical Super Bowl. And uh, yeah, man, you got to show up to the big game. Um, with that... Dr. Emerling, I would love to have you on here again, man. You're 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 a brilliant individual. Of course, if you know Dr. Corey and Dr. McCullough, why wouldn't you be? It is a, <laughs> it is a mystery to me why all of these doctors continue to come on my podcast. But it makes me look good, so I'll shut up and not bite the hand that feeds me. Um, but dude, you're a cool guy. Thank you for coming on here, and I uh, look forward to the next one. You bet. Anytime, Tom. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much for watching. Take care. Recording stop. God bless. Peace.